From the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame Stories. In this episode, as the dust settles on the 2018 midterm elections, the role the Latino community is playing to shape the American political landscape. This election demonstrates the continuing challenge of Latinos translating their demographic presence into political influence and translating it into political respect. Luis Fraga is the Reverend Donald P. McNeil Professor of Transformative Latino Leadership. He's also the director of Notre Dame's Institute for Latino Studies. Well, there's a there's a, a narrative about outreach to Latino communities that focuses on them as a very recent phenomenon. Well, in fact, the first major attempt to reach out to Latino communities was during the 1960 presidential campaign mm. when John Kennedy, the first Catholic, running for the second Catholic running for president of a major political party, reached out in what were called Viva Kennedy campaign, mm-hmm. Viva Kennedy campaign. And in fact, he had his wife, Jackie Onassis, record a message in Spanish um, that was televised and uh, particular was aired particularly in Florida, uh, Texas, and California. Queridos amigos, les habla la esposa del senador John F. Kennedy, candidato a la presidencia de los Estados Unidos. That has continued in subsequent presidential campaigns. Nixon had a very explicit Hispanic strategy in both 1968 and 1972. Some attribute the um, use, popular, much more popular use of the term Hispanic to that Nixon campaign hmm. that was trying to outreach simultaneously to Republican-leaning Mexican-American voters and clearly Republican-supporting Cuban voters in Florida hmm. and needed a term to build a bridge between the two. Latino didn't seem to quite fit with either community, so the term Hispanic seemed to be the one that was used, a term that has had legs and has remained and so forth. Hmm. Um, so there's this very interesting way in which what I'll call Latino voters, Hispanic voters, um, are seen generally as much more consistently Democrats and supporters of Democrats. Um, The recent data suggests that it's at about the level of 70%. And then you have pockets of Latino voters who are consistent Republican voters. Cuban Americans tend to be much more consistently Mm. Republican, although that has dropped to be about a 50-50 split in recent times. But they're always a favorite of the Republican Party, particularly in a competitive state like Florida, where these margins can matter significantly. Talk a little bit more about Florida because of the in-migration of Puerto Rican voters. Um, And um, that 30% of Latino voters throughout the country, states like Texas and California and others, that are pretty consistent Republican voters. Mm. So you don't get the 90-10 split that you tend to get among African American voters. Um, You you don't get the sort of 55-45 split, depending on the election and the state and so forth, that you get among white voters. So it's more like African-American voters, less like white voters, but not as overwhelmingly Democrat as you mm. might think. So all that to suggest that there have always been incentives for both parties to see themselves as being able to make inroads in this group. Mm-hmm. I think there is um, a tendency to 
paint with broad strokes when it comes to issues that the Latino community cares about. Um, Am I right or wrong in that? If you ask Latino Latinos generally and Latino voters specifically, what the most important issues are facing the country, their responses will very closely mirror what any major survey Mm. of the American population will indicate. If the economy is doing, having difficulty, they'll talk about jobs in the economy. If it's a time like after 9-11 where issues of national security are extremely important, then national security becomes the number one issue. So that's asking the question, what's the most important issue you think facing the country? If you ask them what's the most important issue facing Latino communities, which is a different issue, right? right? Very often, three issues rise to the top. Immigration, education, and jobs in the economy. Mm -hmm. And immigration, at times, is the number one issue. It's always within the top three. Mm. Now, why might that be the case, given that we know that 64% of all Latinos are American citizens by birth, Mm -hmm. another 11% of Latinos are naturalized American citizens, that 75% of all Latinos in the United States today are American citizens, Mm. legally by birth or through naturalization. Why would you think immigration is so important? Well, because immigration has become such an important issue in our national politics at various points in time. And many of those Latinos who are born in the United States are in fact born to immigrant parents or have a relative one generation removed or two generations removed. Let's take someone like me, who's a third generation Mm -hmm. Latino, third generation Mexican American. My grandparents immigrated from Mexico in the early part of um, the 20th century, 1905 on one side, 1915 on the other side, on my mom's side. So why might I have a concern with that? Well, when I see anti-immigrant rhetoric and hear anti-immigrant rhetoric and see anti-immigrant politics and rallies, that's against my grandmother. That's against my grandfather. So I can pretend that that doesn't matter to me. But for many Latinos, that generational identity becomes an important way of understanding immigration as well. Mm -hmm. Combine that with the way in which there are more mixed status Latino families. Some people in the same family are, are legal in the United States. Some folks are not. Brother may be, sister isn't, grandmother is, but father isn't. All of these mixtures. And you can see how the clean legal distinction doesn't hold up when you think of real people, real families, Mm -hmm. real churches, real communities, real workplaces. It's much more integrated across those immigration lines. Mm. You mentioned rhetoric. Did that play um, a major role in this most recent election that you could see? Um, As best we can tell right now, yes. That is, there's some polling. Uh, There's a firm out of California run by a couple of friends of mine called Latino Decisions that tends to do the best polling of Latino communities. There's also national polling as well. Their polls indicate that um, Latinos took a greater interest in this election than they have in past elections and talked about being more interested in this election. Is that in part a reaction to Mm. the rhetoric that was there? I think it's a reasonable determination 
determination to say yes. They did not ask, why do you have right. more of an interest? So we don't know that for sure. It's, it's also the case that more Latino voters were contacted by both political parties, although not nearly as much as one might think. Mm. There uh, certainly were great mobilization efforts. Beto O'Rourke's campaign in Texas um, did that. Um, interestingly, uh, the uh, Republican senatorial candidate in Florida made explicit outreach to Puerto Rican voters in Florida. There has been a massive migration of Puerto Ricans uh, from Puerto Rico to Florida because of the economic downturn there and Hurricane Maria Mm. and all the dislocation that that has led to. Um, there's an understanding that Puerto Rican voters should identify more with the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. But what Democrat and Republican mean on the island of Puerto Rico, a U.S. territory, Puerto Ricans who are born there are U.S. citizens. They come to the United States. They're eligible to vote right away. There's no naturalization process because they've been American citizens since 1917. So there's some efforts at that, but still a very significant percentage of Latino voters were not contacted mm. by either campaign or other party. There's a reason. And that reason is? <laughs> the reason is because about half of all Latino eligible voters live in two states, mm. California and Texas. One could make an argument, this is before the um, senatorial race in Texas, that California is a pretty solidly blue state, and Texas, again, until the senator, was a pretty solidly red state. Mm -hmm. So what was the benefit to either party of going out and trying to mobilize? Well, of course, depending on the election and the area and so forth, but at a statewide level, there's a reason why resources would be invested where you think that contact would have a strategic benefit and a strategic gain. Mm -hmm. So in places like Nevada, where the contestation is much more close, much more contact. Mm. Places like Florida, much more contact by both Republican and Democratic parties. I want to go back to uh, the Florida senatorial campaign. You mentioned uh, Rick Scott's outreach to just Puerto Rican voters. That strikes me as... Um, a maybe more refined strategy than than maybe has been employed in, in other places and in other times. Is it too early to tell if that was effective in that campaign? We don't know at this point. We're mm -hmm. waiting to look at the data, um, waiting to look at the polling data, but also waiting to look at the turnout data and see what the levels of Republican and Democratic support were to see how effective a strategy that was. Certainly we know that in the public airwaves of Florida and as he decided to develop his campaign, he visited Puerto Rico. He talked about the importance of uh, there being a vote that would be binding mm. uh, for determining whether or not Puerto Rico would become the 51st state in the United States. He talked about um, the importance of responding to the very, um, very real, very substantial material needs that still exist mm -hmm. on the island of Puerto Rico because of the devastation, both from the economy and especially from the hurricane. Those were clearly strategies to reach out to Puerto Rican voters. What was he trying to do? Get Puerto Rican voters, but also minimize the extent to which they may just think the Democrats want them. Let's talk about kind of big picture. How did uh, Latinos turn out and vote? Well, it was estimated in 2016, we're waiting for the numbers for 2018, that Latinos represented probably about 9.2% of the electorate in the country. 
Now, what's important about that 9.2% is that in 1980, it was 2.6% mm. of the nationwide claim. That's a growth rate of th- over 350%. Mm. So their, their presence right. in actual voting is, um, is significant. Um, lower voter registration rates. Well, it's estimated right now by... Um, the CNN and other exit polls that about 69% of Latinos in the 2018 election voted Democrat and about 29% voted Republican. Cubans were at about 50-50. Were they important in the election? One could make an argument that, that Latino voters in Texas and the mobilization strategies of the O'Rourke campaign made the election much more competitive, not just Latino voters in Texas, the term, the preferred sure. term would be Hispanic voters, not just them, but in combination with the other efforts to mobilize and switches in suburban voters and white college educated voters in certain areas and so forth made them significant. Um, Nevada, another very competitive state, it's likely that they had a very significant impact. And certainly they had a significant impact in making the elections in Florida for governor and for senator as competitive as they were, but perhaps in Florida on the part of both political parties, Yeah, which makes it really, really interesting. All across the rest of the country, Latino voters make Democrats more competitive rather than Republicans more competitive. Florida is a very interesting exception to that rule. Why do you think that is? Well, historically, Latinos have been much more Democrat than they have been Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time when the Republican component, the Republican support from Latino communities tended to be associated more with social class. Um, as one went up the mobility mm. ladder, one might think of becoming Republican, um, re- associated with what are generally called pocketbook issues, and mm-hmm. tax issues and things of that sort. Um, it became more complicated since the 1980s with the rise of evangelical voters and the Christian right. There is a component of Latino voters who are evangelicals or, if you will, conservative Catholics mm-hmm. who might be issue voters focusing on issues like reproductive rights as a particularly significant issue for them. So that makes it makes the class component not as clean as it might have been before. Uh, but these trends seem to be pretty consistent over time. What is interesting will be to see whether the turnout rates were higher. So although the partisan division wasn't any any greater in favor of the Democratic Party, it'd be interesting to see whether turnout overall was greater, which would be a very, a very um, significant sign. Talk to me about um, Latino candidates. Uh, we saw a number this year. How does that speak to, to motivation? Having a Latino on the ballot can be a very important motivating factor, depending on who the candidate is and what the candidate says. Mm-hmm. Um, just being of Latino descent, Hispanic descent is not enough. Um, all of the polls that we have done, studies we have done, show that Latino voters are like uh, many American voters, issue voters. Mm. Um, that is, they have some issues that are more important to them. It's more important for them to have a candidate who supports their position on issues, whatever that position is, than for the person to happen to be of the same ethnic background or happen to speak Spanish. Some candidates think if they speak Spanish that there's a special outreach. Well, speak Spanish can help. Mm. Being a Latino can help. Being a Latino might give you in the campaign a capacity to relate to certain constituencies in a different way, but it's not determinative 
of how it is that the voter will actually decide. But it certainly is helpful, for example, to have had many Latinas running for office. Mm-hmm as there were more women running for office in the incoming congressional um, new um, uh, congressional class, so to speak, it's expected that there will be 36 to 37 Latinos going into Congress, four in the Senate, and the others in the House. Among them will be one of the youngest new members of Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York. Um, there will be, for the first time, two Latina women in the Texas Democratic delegation mm. going to the House of Representatives. There was elected for the second time in history another Latina governor in the state of New Mexico. She's a Democrat. The previous one was a Republican mm. um, elected from the same state of New Mexico. So, so having the candidates can generate excitement, but that excitement has to also be supported by specific outreach specific messaging, and especially consistent positions on issues that are important to Latino community. Symbolism is a good start. Mm. It's not determinative of the final decision. Immigration, the position of a candidate on immigration, particularly being supportive of immigration, is sometimes referred to as a window that opens up the possibility that a substantial percentage of Latino voters will see you favorably. But once they look through that window on immigration and say, okay, this candidate may be interesting to us, you then say, what are the other issues that are important to the candidate and what are her or his stands on those issues? Is there a central misconception around the Latino voting community um, that uh, many people hold or that has persisted over time? We do have a number of studies that consistently show that if Latinos are contacted consistently by a co-ethnic, that is someone who has a life experience similar to them. Mm. By that I mean not just a robocall, not just a piece of paper, not just a candidate speech in what is usually very badly accented Spanish that may be a recording or a radio ad or something of that sort, but contacted by someone in their neighborhood or someone who they may know at church or in that way that they're very likely to turn out. So, although they are low propensity voters overall, once they are asked to engage by someone of credibility mm. to them, they are, they are very likely to participate in the electoral process. And you can see how that works against the traditional understanding that we shouldn't try to get these folks out because of, well, how you reach out to Latino voters, who is doing the reaching out, and how consistent that reaching out is, is I think something that is often misunderstood um, to the disadvantage of further Latino engagement. Another tremendous misunderstanding is that um, Latinos struggle with um, citizenship, Mm. Um, as we just said, 75% of all Latinos are American citizens already, so they're, they're eligible by citizenship. More importantly, of Latinos under the age of 18 in the United States today, 94% were born in the United States mm. and are citizens by birth. That is about 800,000 Latinos turn 18 every year. 800,000. 
half of those folks are in Texas and California. Hmm. But that's a substantial number. And with the growth of the Latino population in the South, in the Midwest, and in the Pacific Northwest, in addition to continued growth in areas like Florida, New York, Texas, California, other parts of the Southwest, you can see that there's tremendous potential if one focuses on the younger generation of voters. So a strategy that explicitly acknowledges the potential power of the younger generation could be a very effective one for um, candidates of both political parties. The most important effort in any strategy to reach out to Latino voters is to have a message that focuses on the opportunities that the candidate will work to provide the next generation. Latinos are very focused on providing opportunities for their children. It's why people migrate to this country. It's why people work so hard at two and three jobs as is necessary when they don't have sufficient education to be able to live. It's why more and more families in the country generally, certainly the case among Latino families, where both mother and father are working and, and working multiple, multiple jobs. Um, so a focus on what policies are going to be pursued, what opportunities are going to be provided in education, in employment, are very important when they focus on the next generation. Mm. Secondly, I would say the, 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 the parties and candidates have to take a reasonable position on immigration. I know the claim is made that the Democrats support open borders. That's not true. But there has to be a credible claim on the other side about working towards legalization. There are precedents for that. Um, not that many years ago, there's a bipartisan coalition of eight senators, four Republicans, four Democrats. Marco Rubio from Florida was among the Republicans who was that they, they were called the Gang of Eight mm -hmm. that put together a set of principles that might guide our immigration policy, made some difficult decisions about numbers and about evidence for legalization and so forth. So they, they have to have a credible position with multiple constituencies simultaneously. You've mentioned issues that would be top of mind in many communities across the country, but the difference, I imagine, is not just the opinions held by the Latino community, but the experience that forged those opinions. Am I right? I think you're right. I think that in some ways, Latinos in the United States are like any other person in the United <laughs> States, except for their vulnerability of becoming targets. Mm and anti-immigrant and anti-Latino rhetoric. There is a term that's used uh, called being a second tier citizen and now being an un and another term used that says Latinos and others, Asians might be included in that group are, and people who are, who are uh, legal migrants here from the Middle East are um, always vulnerable to being perpetual foreigners mm. that is seen by some as not having earned the right to be in the United States or being expendable in the United States. Um, Latinos have always been vulnerable to that. Um, mm. In the 1930s, uh, about a million Latinos estimated were deported under the Hoover administration during the economic uh, crisis of 1929 and the stock market crash. Um, and they were loaded into buses and loaded into railroad cars. It's estimated that about half, largely Mexicans, half of those people were US citizens and were shipped out. Same thing happened in 1952 hmm. under the Eisenhower administration when an estimated 1.5 million Mexicans were deported largely from urban areas, um, Chicago, um, New York, um, Los Angeles, 
um, uh, southern Texas. Um, and again, it's estimated that about half of those people who were, the, the legal term was repatriated, mm. was deported, were American citizens as well. All of that suggests to me that as Latinos grow in their presence, it isn't a guarantee that all interests will try to incorporate them from whatever ideological or other political predisposition they may have. My hope is that the next generation will be able to overcome those divisions and barriers more easily than my generation has, mm. um, and that the politics of the country will begin to reflect that. Hard decisions need to be made. Sure. Decisions about budget, decisions about citizenship, and so forth. My hope is that a a principle used is what will help build the country for the future, given its demographic shifts, rather than have some hopeful vision of the United States being a nation of the past. Luis Fraga, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Andy. Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. 